0: and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Rodolphe Ruffier, an international attorney with Clifford Chance, based in Paris, where he specializes in international commercial arbitration, investor state dispute settlement, and public international law. His practice encompasses Europe, Asia Pacific, Africa, and North America—pretty much the entire world. So, Rudolf, welcome to Harris Bricken's Global Law and Business. Thank you very much, Fred, for the invitation, and thank you, Jonathan. So, I was just taking a look at your bio on the Clifford Chance webpage. Uh, very impressive. And what I'd like to ask you to do is, is walk us through that. Um, we can, of course, recite what's what's uh, on the website, but we find that it's much more interesting when we have our guests tell us about themselves and and sort of give a little additional context. I do have one special request. I was, I was noticing, I noticed that you are a graduate of uh, uh, Nanterre University. I hope, I hope my French wasn't too terrible there. But I have read uh, a fair amount uh, about the university, and but you're you're the first. Um, Alumnus of the university that that I have met. So, if you could insert somewhere in there uh, a little, a little, you know, a couple of sentences about the university and why it's
2: famous. All right, thanks, Fred. Um, Well, I guess first off, I should specify that if we're being precise. Uh, I belong both right now to the Paris and the Perth, Australia office of Clifford Chance, And I guess my colleagues in Australia would be quite sad if I were not to mention this. I actually belong to the Perth office, uh, even though I'm French. Uh, But, you know, COVID has many interesting ways to make you question yourself, uh, including geographically. And I guess this is one of those moments when uh, I am in a sort of quantum state of superposition of offices. Um, When it gets to my profile, I'm I'm, I'm French, as I have mentioned. I've studied in France, as you've you've just mentioned yourself, at Nanterre, and I will get to this in a second. Um, But I'm not qualified in France. I'm qualified in New York State, Washington State, um, Western Australia, and New Zealand. Um, and again, I guess it, it explains a little bit uh, the fact that I'm based in between uh, France um, and Australia at the moment. When it gets to Nanterre, uh, it's my alma mater, as as you guys say in in the US. Um, and I'm a bit surprised that you know about Nanterre, to be perfectly honest, because in 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 France, for sure, it's it's quite well known, but not so much on the world stage. You've mentioned the history and the aura of the University. Um, and yes, it has a very interesting uh, background because it was basically born on the ashes of the 1968 revolution uh, in, in France. And um, basically, it was that time that also um, you experienced in the US where society was trying to break free from the bounds of you know, custom and the old ways um, in many respects. And that university really incarnate that spirit of revolution. So in a way, it is a very, very French university. And that made it a very interesting experience because um, anarchy, socialism is everywhere in that university. And I think it's for the better, because traditionally in France, I would say that uh, law schools tend to be more um, right-wing than left-wing, whereas in Nanterre, because it has that very strong uh, left identity, um, well, the, the body of professors itself is quite diverse um not just your classmates but again the professors that teach you yes there are very right-wing professors but you also have like uh, quasi communist professors which is very interesting uh and the reputation that the university enjoys in in france and it's quite unique in in that respect i suppose
1: Rodolphe, your background, even for Fred and me to look at as international lawyers, you, you are the international lawyers, international lawyer. So this is a lot of fun for us to talk to you uh, because you've studied in so many places and worked in so many places. So let's talk about international law. For those who are in the business, we talk about public international law and private international law, and you have experience in both. Can you explain the difference to our audience?
2: Yes, of course. Um, so perhaps it's a bit better to start off with public international law, uh, even though it might be a bit counterintuitive. But when when one mentions international law, um, usually uh, they refer to um, the, the laws between states, right? You think UN, you think WTO, and that's really public international law. And in a way, Public international law is the international administrative law, right? It means it is the law that governs the relations between states as opposed to relations between people, right? Um, You've got the law of the sea, space law, um, international trade law, all of those bodies of law that exist within the framework of the UN or other international organizations, that's public international law. And that also encompasses uh, part of my practice, which is international investments, right? Now, when it gets to private international law, it's a bit murkier, to be frank. Um, The definition is not the same across the board in different jurisdictions, but let's just say that private international law or the conflicts of laws rules that you encounter in different jurisdictions that regulate this time, the relations between people as opposed to the relations between countries. So um, to take a a very simple example, um, if uh, say you've got a contract between a French guy and and a Japanese company, um, and nobody specifies what law should apply to the contract depending on in which jurisdiction the contract was executed, Um, you're going to have conflict of law rules that will tell you, okay, because that guy is French, the company is Japanese, but the contract was made in England, then you should apply the law of whatever country based on the laws of the place where the contract was made. These are called rules of private international law. But private international law, in a loser sense, also means simply... um, the laws, generally speaking, that apply in international context and international business context. Um, And I guess that in a way, you could argue that international arbitration between companies is a component or a segment of private international law, even though from a purely academic perspective, it's not very accurate. But as I said, it's a bit murkier compared to public international law, which is well-defined usually as compared to private international law.
1: I think you described a perfect scenario, which is very common in our world today that you have, especially in international trade, you have a buyer in one country, you have a seller in another country. They may be goods exchanged, there may be services. And often these parties never leave their home countries. And a lot of times they don't involve lawyers. And so they don't hit on those important things like choice of law and and how to resolve their disputes. I find that a lot of our practice is is educating clients on how to do business internationally within that private international context, given all of the laws that can apply to the situation.
2: Right, I, I completely agree with what you've just said, Jonathan, um, and uh, you, know, you mentioned clients, but it can even be colleagues or people around you because we tend, and I think it's true for many trades, not just our profession, you tend to forget how technical these things become and how specialized they are. So um, I guess at some point, those things are so obvious that they're deeply ingrained in your brain. Uh, And if you don't pause when you talk to neophytes or just people who are interested, but it's not their job, um, you realize that you jump a bit the gun when you get to talk about those international things. Um, and it's always interesting, I find to take a step back, uh, put yourself in the shoes of the teacher somehow and, and and you know just give a little explanation as to what exactly you do um, and and what is exactly that it is to practice as an international lawyer, even though per se doesn't really mean anything concrete. So Rodolph, you have
0: experience in a very wide range of industries, everything from energy to mining to space activities, even eSports, all of which are constantly evolving. But within this, uh, I'm wondering if you can single out uh, a couple of industries that uh, you particularly enjoy uh, working with.
2: Yes, of course. Um, There are quite a few uh, for different reasons. There are some industries that deeply echo with personal uh, interests. You have mentioned esports. it's one of them. You have mentioned space activities. It's, it's another category um, that I, I personally enjoy, a deep personal level, and it's, it's beyond the professional interest. Um, so obviously when you're a gamer or um, you, know, you gaze at the stars and there is a way to connect those things to what you do for a living on an everyday basis, um, it doesn't really feel like you're working. It just feels like you're trying to live of your passion. Uh, and I guess as a lawyer, it's not that easy usually because, uh, you know, I'm not one of those persons who always known they wanted to be a lawyer and have always fantasized about the law. To the contrary, I, I tend to tell people it, it's quite dull. You know, I mean, uh, people know lawyers through TV shows. Uh, and they imagine the courtroom and the objections flying left and right, whereas 90% of what we do, maybe 95% of what we do in these uh, COVID days is just sitting behind a computer. Um, so eSports, um, uh, I, I enjoy discussing and, and working in relation to those trying to give it um, some life through the prism of international disputes, um, which is a real thing. Uh, because sports disputes already are mainly governed by uh, arbitration uh, when it gets to international competitions and you can replicate that model to esports. And it's something I'm actively working on with some colleagues um, in Europe, primarily. Um, Space activities, it's a bit of a different story and different pace. It's not something that's happening right now or it, or else, I would say it is getting started right now, but it, it hasn't really happened yet. Um, when you look at SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk, you know, uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, you understand we're about to get there um, and, and private actors are going to be in space as much or even more than public actors. Governments so far had a de facto monopoly over space activities. And when we talk about space activities, space law, or even space disputes, as they are bound, unfortunately, to happen, because at the end of the day, we're all humans, um, it is a, a bit of a. Um, self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, in a way, uh, and, and a bit of uh, forward-looking exercise, but just the same. It's uh, something that resonates with me at a personal level because I'm one of those who really believe in science. And I believe that the future of mankind is, is up there uh, in the stars. Um, but if we're staying on the ground right now with something that I literally do every day, uh, I guess the mining industry, is is another area that I particularly enjoy for very different reasons. I cannot say that right off the bat, I'm one of those guys who, you know, love reading about those big fat mining companies drilling deep down to dig some gold uh, or some iron ore. Uh, but when you get into that industry... Um, and, and as, as, as far as I'm concerned, it was a bit up by chance, you know, I didn't really plan to become a, a mining lawyer, but that's what we do mainly in Australia with Clifford Chance Mining Disputes. It's a fascinating industry because you realize that everybody hates that industry as much as oil, because yes, these are big, you know, like projects, they are, they are dirty in many ways because again, you're drilling the soil, you know. Um, but they're necessary and they're strategic. So nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to resort to mining the ground and polluting the environment, that's for sure. And I'm the first one to say, we have to be careful. But at the same time, you realize that, look, right now we're recording a podcast. I'm using a microphone, a computer, and so are you, and phones, and all of this is full of rare earth. You know, And to get rare earth until we can dig it from asteroids up there, we still have to dig it from somewhere on earth. And that's where mining come into play. And the, the, the bigger question of natural resources that is very political. And I guess another reason I like mining industries is because it's a very political industry as much as it is a, a, a technical uh, industry and, and a financial industry in many respects. So uh, it's just a, a little bit of a snapshot. Uh, of the industries that i have uh, an interest both personal and professional in
1: i'd love to talk a little bit more about the global mining industry if if you can i i like to follow everything i guess and i don't really have an area that i'm particularly pra- passionate about except for international affairs so i africa has been on my radar a lot of course the uh, you know china's dispute with australia and how that affects australian imports to china of course you mentioned rare earths And China has a heavy appetite for rare earths uh, as it is the manufacturing hub of the world for a lot of these high tech devices. So, can you talk a little bit more generally about things that you've been paying attention to and reading, maybe some trends in this global mining industry?
2: Certainly, uh, Jonathan. Being based in Australia, at least until recently, And and having a personal interest in China as well, uh, having lived there, uh, um, both in in mainland China and in Taiwan, um, I find it fascinating what is happening geopolitically at the moment. Um, You've got a de facto trade war between the US and China and a trade war between Australia and China. It was not really meant to happen, I think, as in, oh, we're going to war, commercially speaking, with China. But this is what's happening at the moment, unfortunately. Um, And what's interesting is that uh, talking about the mining industry, you can see that for the past, say, 10 years, really, China has been heavily investing in Australian miners conducting projects in Africa. Australian companies have a long-standing expertise um, in the mining industry. And arguably together with the US and Canada, they have one of the most active um, mining industry in the world. And one of the most sophisticated ones. Uh, but what they lacked uh, was capital, was money. And, and China is uh, n- no short of money, right? Um, and as you've just mentioned, uh, rare earth, but ore, generally speaking, is, is quite capital to Chinese economy because um, it, it is still growing at the moment albeit a bit slower than what it used to. And and of course, China needs to feed I- its uh, heavy industries with with iron ore, to an extent with gold and rare earth. So uh, what they have done over the past 10 years until recently is to invest a lot of money in those Australian companies that would... Um, get the ore off the ground in in Africa and to an extent Southeast Asia. So then China can buy that ore and ship it back directly to the mainland, right? To to feed uh, its its heavy industries and manufacturing industries. Except, um, as I've just mentioned, um, with with those trade wars ongoing, um, it has become more and more difficult for China to source Uh, It's ore directly from Australia or from those Australian companies. Uh, And now I guess it is trying to find other sources purchasing ore, um, including rare earths and and iron ore, most particularly from other places. And I guess Africa, again, uh, is full of minerals. Um, And more and more Chinese companies themselves have the expertise uh, to to go uh, um on those projects alone without the support of a western company and i guess this is what we're seeing at the moment is is that sort of direct relationship between china and and african countries that that was non-existent say before the turn of the millennium so it, it is what's happening right now and obviously it's creating disputes because you're disrupting a balance right for the past 10 years, there was a very established balance. Chinese companies purchase or fund Australian companies. Those Australian companies uh, develop projects in Africa. And then, when the ore gets off the ground, boom, it is uh, sold and shipped back to China. But now, because China is basically uh, bypassing, um uh, their their western partners creating new routes for trade of of those minerals then obviously it generates conflicts it generates disputes and and quite a, a bit of my work is is actually arising from that reorganization of international supply of ore
1: that's really a great segue into the next thing i wanted to ask you because in my practice in international trade you have a lot of brokers involved as in the middle connecting buyers and sellers, and often you have chains of brokers. And I have got to assume that's somewhat similar in the mining industry as well. So can you talk a little bit more about your work as a registered arbitrator? You've been involved with the International Arbitration Center of the Chinese Arbitration Association, that's the CAAI, the Pacific International Arbitration Center, PIAC, uh, can you talk about what you do as an arbitrator and what kinds of disputes you see and uh, maybe some uh, some interesting stories uh, of things you've been involved in?
2: It's a bit delicate to talk about uh, because most of these are confidential. But um, so far, what I've been doing mainly um, e- on the arbitrator side of things is being a tribunal secretary. So um, I actually started off arbitration not on the counsel side, but on the arbitrator side. Um, and I've participated in that capacity, tribunal secretary, in about I'd say twenty to twenty-five cases with different arbitrators, um, from from whom I've I've learned quite a great deal. Um, and I guess it's not so much about the profile of cases that I handled. Uh, that is the most um, interesting takeaway to 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 get from is more. Um, the the experience of the procedure itself um, in, um, in a different capacity as when you're acting as counsel, because what you're being taught on the job, really, uh, when you act as counsel is that um, you have, well, there are two scenarios. Either you're on the right side of the case, uh, good facts, good law, and then you make compelling arguments, and then you have to reply to answer to uh, nonsense arguments from the other side, or more convoluted interpretations of such law uh, or such contract. Or you're on the wrong side uh, of the case, and then it's your turn to come up with creative interpretations of whatever contract or law is at stake, right? Um, and that's that's the deal, right? Uh, even when you're dealt a raw hand you know, because your client is not exactly on the right side of the case, whatever, you have to make it work. And, and in a way, I guess you, you have to end up really believing what you say if you want to convince whomever you're talking to or at least be a good actor at, at giving that impression. And when you work on the arbitrator side, um, th- what is expected from you is very different. Uh, you're not asked to uh, deliver a narrative. You're not asked to create a story. You're asked to look beyond the stories that are put to you by the parties uh, and try to make sense of of an entire universe of facts and law um, and be able to decide what what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. It, It sounds, I guess, not so complicated because you're thinking, well, yes, obviously, you know, I mean, I'm just reading all that material and I have an opinion, well... Stories are compelling, right? And and then uh, y- you really have to be able to take a step back and look beyond the stories that are put to you. I, I personally thoroughly enjoy being put in that position uh, because I guess um, I I, s- I still want to believe in-, in justice and what one could call the truth um, behind a case or, or you know a situation. Um, and and that quest for you know what is what is right, uh, what is the, the the pertinent outcome when applying the law, and the applicable law to a given fact pattern is, is is quite challenging. Um, it's a different challenge to being counsel, but um, definitely it's something I personally enjoy. I wouldn't be able to really give, as I said, the typical profile of cases that I've handled as tribunal secretary. They've been very very different. Um, but, but then again, to me, the most interesting part about working on that side of cases is, is really the procedure, um, as opposed to really the types of cases that you get to handle.
0: With 20 to 25 cases under your belt, I'm assuming that at least a, a couple of those have been a little special, right? I mean, if it was only one or two, then chances are that, they would have taken place probably in maybe more more conventional settings, but I'm just wondering if if there if there are any experiences that 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 stand out um because of of the venue where where the arbitration took place or because of some of the the parties of course we understand you you cannot reveal uh, the identity of the parties, but I'm just wondering if you have any any war stories about your hmm. your experiences uh on the in the arbitration world
2: yes um. Well, yes, I guess so. Um, I recall one of those cases. That was a bit odd, actually. Um, I was tribunal secretary, and it was an arbitration uh, seated in in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, And the institution that we were using was the... um, SCC, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. And there was nothing really wrong about the case per se, but it was a bit funny because um, there were two Russian companies fighting over the ownership of a hotel in Russia. And it's it's extremely common for Russian parties to use Stockholm and London actually as, as both a seat and venue for their arbitrations. And I recall it was quite peculiar because the day of the hearing, uh, usually in arbitration and even in court, you know, you wear, you wear a nice suit and all the parties are uh, all dressed up the same pretty much, at least when it's males wearing, again, suit, tie, et etc. et cetera. So, uh, of course, the three arbitrators and, and myself, the tribunal secretary, showed up fully suited, the claimant just the same. And the lawyer of... The respondent, for some reason, was that young Russian guy, dressed up super casually. He was like wearing a T-shirt, jeans, trainers, and everybody was looking at him as in, "What's happening here? Are you? Are you like the party itself? Are you the lawyer?" And he said, "No, no, I'm I'm the lawyer. I mean, I'm representing the guy." And I, it was a bit funny because it goes to show a little bit that um. We assume a lot of things based on our own culture and our own expectations of cases. But international arbitration is is just that. It is international. And sometimes you come across people um, who are not exactly, uh, you know, made of the same customs and habits as you are. And you're quick to assume that because it's arbitration, everybody's going to behave the same and do the same things. And no, 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 not at all. And that's what makes it a fascinating field. So I just found it quite... Quite odd on the spot, and I wasn't too sure what to say or do. But then, in the end, uh, we we looked beyond the uh, the garment, of course, and and um, that, that was just an interesting one uh, that I found a bit funny because it was unusual. Um, thinking about another war story um, of an interesting case. Um, Yes, I, I guess it's in in the leading up to, to the case itself, not, not the hearing or anything, but especially when you deal with jurisdictions, uh, developing countries in certain regions of the world, you realize that um, again, the, the cultural shock is real uh, and the legal shock too. Um, I recall um that one case when I was working in china uh it was not it was not really an arbitration in the beginning it was about first identifying the laws as they should apply to a given situation and was conducting some research you know on the internet using some databases of legislation et cetera and then at some point I recall that. I was unable to figure out exactly what the, the details of the application of the law should be, what the rules should be ahead of that case we were trying to build up. And I, I asked uh, my boss then um, what's the best way to get the information, what, what sort of textbook I should look into. He said, no, 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 hold up, you don't understand here we don't look in textbooks so much. What you have to do is pick up the phone and call the local administration and ask them in that situation, what are the applicable rules that you should um, uh, apply to the case? And it's the only real way to know for certain uh, what, what are the specific regulations that apply to that scenario. And I was a bit shocked because I was thinking, well, in France, that would never really happen that way. If anything, if I were to call the administration, uh, they would tell me something and immediately I would try to look up online whether what they say is accurate or not. Um, whereas there, um, it, it was a practice at least 10 years ago. You have to dial the local you know, bureau of whatever it is you're trying to figure out and ask them, oh, well, hold on, I mean when it gets to whatever license or this or that, exactly what's the procedure. And um, I guess that's a very different way of practicing law. And that's why I have, what I have enjoyed so much in working in different jurisdictions is the fact that, yes, we're international lawyers doing international business disputes, but we don't practice law quite the same way across the board. Uh, And you, you learn quite a lot from, you know, just the way people work in different places as lawyers, the profile of lawyers is not the same because they, go, they don't go through the same exams, they don't go through the same training. And the profile of a typical lawyer in China is not the same as in France, is not the same as in the US, uh, not the same as in Australia. So um I don't know if these qualify really as war stories, but I guess those stories really... um Left a mark in me because it's it's in those moments I really realized the, the benefit of of working in in dif- very different places around the world.
0: I mean, first of all, I think these these do qualify as as war stories. But you bring up a a, a very uh, fascinating but also accurate point, which is that the world of of lawyers is is a really diverse one, and and I, I'd venture to say that. In other in other professions, you might have less of a divergence, right? I mean, if you are a a surgeon, right? No matter where you are, you're ultimately going to be cutting people open and dealing with human bodies, which you know are are uh, the same, no matter no matter where you are. If you're an engineer, you you have to make sure your your buildings uh, don't don't fall down. But when it comes to when it comes to lawyers, um, th- there is quite a bit of, of, of difference. Um, uh, and of course that just reflects the, the cultural expectations of, of, of what a, what a lawyer will do in each, each jurisdiction. And, and certainly I've, I've, um, uh, during my time in, in China, I, I certainly had my, my fair share of, of these, uh, these moments of, of, of reflection. Um, I'd like to, to follow this, this line of, um, of discussion and talk a little bit about australia um uh, you you mentioned at the beginning of the of our conversation that that you are um a member of both the paris and, and perth offices not sure of whether you are at this very moment but evidently you are at least uh partly based uh in 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 australia so i'd like to to hear more uh about the The Australian lawyer, if you will, and the the Australian legal system, obviously, from from the perspective of common law uh, attorneys, like uh, like Jonathan and and me, there's there's obviously some some similarities between the systems every once in a while, depending on the kind of work what we're doing, uh, especially the more international uh, matters that occasionally we'll run across. Australian case law right uh, but I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, especially given your perspective as, as something of an outsider right you have that ability to perhaps look at things with a with a slight you know with a more critical eye and I don't, I don't mean that in a in a negative way simply someone who can who can look at it through through different different eyes and I'm also while you're at it um I'd like to hear a little bit more about Perth and Western Australia it's it's a part of the world that that fascinates me. I've never been there. I've never been to Australia, period. But, but certainly when, when you look at the map, right, there's, there's just something fascinating uh, about the fact that there's this large city, obviously, you know, the kind of place that, that has uh, a Clifford Chance office, but it is pretty isolated. So I'd love to hear more about what the place is like. What do people do? Um, what's the weather like, frankly? I, I mean, I, I have no idea. So anything you can, you can share with us about, about Perth, uh, I'd love to hear that and your thoughts on
2: Australia. Wow, I could uh, use an entire evening to tell you about the wonders of Western Australia, particularly. Um, I guess, very quickly, when it gets to Australia, generally speaking, as a country, you need to realize that it's roughly the same size uh, geographically as the US if you exclude Alaska, Hawaii, and overseas territories. So when you look at the US, you look at Australia, it's roughly the same size, except there are 25 million people in Australia, not close to 300 million, right? Um, so it's not densely populated at all. When it gets to Western Australia, where I live, it's a bit crazy because you need to imagine that you're cutting the US in half. You look at the Western half of the US and there is only one major city. And that city is called Perth. It has about 2 million people that spreads uh, on a a rather large area. It's quite spread out. It's not very concentrated in terms of uh, population two million people and is the only city in the Western half of the country, a country that is the size of the US. So that, that I think that puts things a bit into perspective. In terms of isolation, um, the closest city to Perth is not even a city in Australia, right? You would say, oh, maybe Adelaide, South, South Australia. No, no, no. The closest city to Perth is Bali in Indonesia. It's about two hours by plane. And that, again, puts things into perspective. The closest city to Perth is not in Australia, right? It's in Indonesia. Um, And for that reason, uh, Perth has quite a unique identity. Uh, It has always been a bit secluded. They know that they live in their own little corner of Australia, which itself is in its own little corner of the world, right? Because the country itself is quite isolated. Um, And yet, I wouldn't say that when I first landed there uh, almost three years ago, I felt too much of a big cultural shock. Um, In terms of climate, I have never been to California, but I I know quite a few people who did and who also been to um, uh, Perth, obviously. And then I guess the climate is roughly similar. Um, And I'm sorry, I'm going to use Celsius degrees here. but the coldest it gets, like in the dead of winter, if you can call it that, in Perth is 15 degrees, which is not too bad. Uh, it's, it's quite humid during winter. It rains a lot. Uh, and then uh, the, the rest of the year, it peaks at 40 something degrees, which is super hot. Maybe it should be 100 Fahrenheit something. Very dry. Um the lifestyle is very close to what I have experienced in the u s um you know, you know i've lived in seattle in washington d c um they're very different places to perth but in a way it's you know big new country very modern cities um if you're after the Parisian nightlife you're gonna be miserable there just the same if you expect your nice little european quaint um city center with the medieval castles, the museum, etc. just the same. You're not gonna be very happy living in Paris. If you're after the nature, um, the, the beautiful landscapes, nice beaches, um, that is the place where you want to live. Uh, again, it's not densely populated. So by my standard, it makes it quite attractive. Um, lots of space, very nice people. Um, and and I guess when talking about the people, we're delving a little bit more into uh, culturally what it means to live in Australia. And I guess it's a place that is halfway between the US and the UK because, again, it's a big new country, right? Just like the US, um, compared to those old European countries, but they have actively sought to maintain that bond with the UK. So in that respect, they are still very European in their mindset. And and certainly, at least half of the population is not quite ready to let go of monarchy, even though uh, it's purely symbolic at this stage. The, the, the Queen of England, who is also the Queen of Australia, doesn't have much power when it gets to you know uh, legal affairs and politics, but they are still attached to that European identity. And of course, this is totally different to the US that has built itself against the the English parliament obviously so that's that's a major difference and then you know transition i think that's a good segue into what it is as a jurisdiction it is a common law jurisdiction um i would say that overall it it doesn't drift too far from law as it is practiced in the UK um they still actively use UK case law in in Australian courts um, it's a precedent-based system. Uh, again, uh, practice in courts very much the same way it is practiced in in the UK. Uh, they practice arbitration with that sort of very heavy common law coloring that you also find in London. So just the same. Um, but when you look at uh, you know their constitution, constitutional law, it is exactly like what it is in the US, frankly. It's a federal state with um, uh, states retaining a lot of power, but you've got that federal level um, that still governs the country. Um, they have the same approach, to their constitution and its interpretation and civil civil rights and, and uh, pu- public liberties as you do in the US. And that's why when I requalified as an Australian lawyer, I really relied heavily on what I knew of, or remembered of US constitutional law and of um, UK, uh, UK private law when I was still studying it at the university. So it's, you need to imagine it's sort of halfway between, again, uh, English law and, and US law. US law when it gets the constitutional matters and UK law for, for the rest, I suppose speaking
1: of countries, I'm curious, when you're looking at a dispute between nations or a private party and a nation, how is that different? How is the way the arbitration is done or the overall dispute handled when, it, when there's a sovereign nation involved on one side or both sides of the table?
2: All right. That's a very interesting question. Um, Let's say that when I am... And, and let me be clear. Today, 95% of my practice is investment arbitration, meaning a company suing a country, to cut long story short. That's what I mainly do um, at the moment. Um, I have done a lot of commercial arbitration, which is company versus company. So the dynamics are are a bit different, but not that different. Um, and they should not be that different because... Um, I would say the main difference is the difference that naturally you give to the respondent state. Um, And, and, you know, state to state disputes are are a different kind. But I think the most interesting setting is when you have a a person, be it a legal or physical person, suing a state. Um, In the traditional B2B dispute, you know, I mean, you got a company, you got another company, and then they arbitrate and that's it. Um, There is no particular difference given to the respondent because they're just another company. But when it gets to uh, investor state disputes, there is a decorum almost in in the proceedings that you don't really find in traditional B2B disputes. Um, Again, I guess naturally, Everybody wants to give a bit more leeway to a state because it's a sovereign sovereign nation. They have inherent powers that transcend the mere contractual relationship that they may have created with the claimant as as a company. Um, And the conduct of the entire proceedings um, I would say does not fundamentally differ that much because at the end of the day, arbitration is arbitration. It is the same sort of core procedure uh, inherently. But then again, in the approach that institutions and, and arbitrators have, they, they tend to give to, to pay more more respecting and, and pay more deference to state because again, you're dealing with a sovereign, right? You're not dealing with a regular person. Um, and you understand that th- their their needs as a country and even as as a party in the arbitration are a bit different. Uh, they are they are under very high public scrutiny um, because they are accountable at least in principle to their own people. So the question of confidentiality, for instance, becomes very crucial. Um, uh, there is that tension between you know the, the need for public information versus um, uh, the, the secrecy of, of some uh, state affairs, which is which is normal. Um, and so, I, I guess that's where the main difference lies: is is the public scrutiny, the confidentiality, and the fact that again you're not dealing with a, with a, a random company, but you're dealing with a sovereign, uh, and and all the decorum that that comes along with it. Uh, I know it's a bit abstract, but in fairness, again, I would want to reiterate that the difference is not that massive during the arbitration. It just it tends to be heavier. Uh, procedure is a bit more complex because. Um, A state has many departments and and sometimes it's a bit hard even for, you know, the opposing counsel to get instructions from their own client because sometimes there are some dissensions within the state as to what the next step in the proceedings should be. Um, and, And we represent both, you know, investors and states. Um, so, so we, we we see the two sides of the coin, and and clearly having a state as a client is not quite the same as having a a company, a bit a large one, uh, as a client in an arbitration. So that's that's pretty much my account of of the main difference between regular B two B disputes and investor state disputes.
1: That's very interesting. Thank you. Now I want to take one more step back from this and look at it from a you giving advice to international transactional attorneys and businesses. So for businesses who like to look over their uh, lawyer's shoulder, who don't even use a lawyer in their international transactions, what are some of the things that they can look to avoid? Uh, Probably things that they're missing in their contract, right? When they're doing international, uh, they, they think they may have a dispute at some point in the life of their business relationship. They're in one country, they're their counterparties in another country? What are some of the things they should look to avoid or to include in those legal documents as they're, as they you know, I mean, these often happen in we, late night WeChat messages, WhatsApp. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that, had to dig through, uh, you know, voluminous records that people are, they're all screenshots of conversations and who said what. And a lot of times there is no contract, but uh, even if there is a contract, there may be some deficiencies. So what are some suggestions you have to make it better so they can avoid getting into dispute, or at least making the dispute process easier for the arbitrator or for the fact finder at the end of the day.
2: Right. Um, You have mentioned the the midnight uh, WhatsApp messages. And it's exactly the first thing I wanted to mention is that um, when you conclude a contract, you know, an agreement with a business partner, um, you don't really want to think about divorce, right? I mean, when you're getting married... And you're happy that you're getting married. You don't want to think about, oh man, what could happen for the down road if one day something wrong uh, between us arises. Often what we hear is like, oh, you dispute lawyers. You know, you, you you're real on negative, and you really want us to think about all those awful, terrible things that could happen to us. And the answer is yes, um, yes, I want you to think about them because you're going to be so miserable if you don't think about them now compared to further down the line when something wrong happens, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but again, we're all humans. We all have diverging interests, And at some point, it could be that um, there's a, a divergence of interest between the parties in the contract. And all of a sudden, um, the relationship changes and one of the parties start defaulting on what they're supposed to do, et cetera. So the, the first message I want to send to people concluding agreements is, um, We're not here to create problems. We're here to let you know that there may be problems in the future. And if you want to avoid further issues to the main problem you're going to have, be it legal or commercial, you might as well think a bit ahead of the game. Right. And it's not very complicated. So all you really have to do in international context, and I'm talking here company to company, um, is to have solid uh, dispute resolution provisions. And oftentimes, what you're going to want to have in your contract um, is a nice little arbitration agreement, right? Because it's going to transcend national courts, it's going to transcend all the conflict of laws issues I was mentioning at the beginning of our conversation um, that that make procedure a nightmare. You don't want to spend months or years thousands and thousands of dollars on just resolving those very stupid procedural issues as to uh, which governing law should apply, where should we take the dispute, and then all of a sudden you've got three sets of proceedings in three different countries because nobody agrees as to where exactly proceedings should be brought. So arbitration is really a way to solve all those issues at once because you decide you're not going to go to any national court, you're going to go to that arbitration institution, you're going to apply that law to the merits of the case, and there you go. So um, it doesn't cost much in terms of money and time to craft customized, and I insist on that, customized dispute resolution provisions. Um, It's a bit tedious because most of the time, transactional lawyers working on those contracts don't don't have the faintest clue as to uh, what is a proper, adapted uh, dispute resolution clause. Um, but, but it's something you really need to consider because again, it's going to cost you maybe a couple grand more in legal advice barely, you know, at the contract stage, at the the project stage. But it's going to save you, again, dozens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of fees in lawyers and time in, in three or four years down the road when, unfortunately, uh, a dispute arises with your best friend, um, your, your partner, business partner. And then you'll be happy that, you know, you, you didn't spend just a, a couple of minutes at midnight on that close, but maybe more like a couple of hours during the day uh, discussing it through with your lawyer. So I guess the main message is don't, you know, I, I know when you're in the honeymoon phase, you don't want to think about divorce, but being the voice of reason, uh, I, I I really urge uh, companies and and transactional lawyers to, to give a quick call to their dispute colleagues or dispute counsel to, to just, you know, uh, have a quick look at what dispute resolution provisions we have it there to save you some trouble uh, in the future.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, really covered a lot of ground. I have really, really enjoyed it. And we could probably continue to to go for, for a lot longer. We're just going to have to have you back at some point so that we can continue to tease out some of these topics. Before we let you go, though, we'd like to ask you for any recommendations you might
2: have for our listeners and uh, your hosts. Yes, of course, Fred. Um, perhaps I would like to recommend a video game. Uh, again, I guess it's the, the, the gamer here talking, um, esports, etc. It's not an esport. Um, it's a saga of video games called Final Fantasy. It's a, a, a Japanese series of uh, role-playing games that have been going on for already more than two decades, um, and recently um, the company, the, the game editor, has released the remake of one of their most iconic video game, Final Fantasy VII. Um, the story is compelling. Um, it it is really accessible to both those who played the game back in the 90s and, and the new players today. It appeals to the audience because um, you can really bind with the characters. Again, the story is very complex. It's like, it's like playing a movie in a way. It's, it's, it's really that experience you get, except it's, it's a 30-hour long movie. Uh, and you're actively involved in it. It's not so much about the gaming. It's more about, again, the story. The music is sublime. Um, And uh, it's interesting, video games, because people tend to look still today to them as toys, just like what the cinema was um, um, in the early 1900s. But these days, it's really art. and, And I can only recommend... Anyone who is interested in in futuristic stories, uh, compelling character development, uh, at giving a try, Uh, PS4, PS5, Final Fantasy VII remake.
0: Well, thank you for that. And Jonathan, any video games for us this week?
1: You know, I I am a big fan of gaming as well, but my my recommendation is actually. a reflection of my real life where I haven't been able to game as much as I used to in my, in my twenties, my teens and twenties, I guess. Uh, but, uh, your, your mention that uh, final fantasy and, and video games generally have, have come evolved into a real art form is, is absolutely true. My 14 year old son has decided he wants to be a, a video game, uh, scorer, right? So he wants to, he wants to write music, for video games. And so I, I've encouraged that because he's very musical, also very good at, at math and science. And so I said, okay, you study electrical engineering or programming and keep studying your music and then you will get to the right places where you'll be able to work on teams that that write scores for popular video games. And it, it's certainly right. Some of the, I know that, that uh, the best composers now uh, are composing for movies, but uh, many of them are also composing for video games as well. So it's an interesting interesting niche to be able to get into. So my recommendation for this week is a, an article that was in the Deseret news called meet Bethany and Seth Mandel, the DC power couple out to popularize big family. And with that kind of clickbait title, I had to see what they, what it was talking about. Um, not polygamy related. This is a, uh, this is a, uh, husband and wife who are Jewish, who are living in the DC area. They have five children And they have 200,000 Twitter followers and they share their lives and what it's like to raise. And I think they, I think they had these five children within a 10 year span. So it was very funny to me as a, as a father of five children to, and we had ours in 12 years. So five children in 12 years to really get a feel for other people's chaos, right? And, and not only that, but they kind of revel in this chaos of, of the ongoing churn of, of having five children. And of course, our, even our discussion today as we've been talking about how uh, you know certain resources are scarce but then we look at the overall population lay and, and find that a lot of it's a, the distribution of resources and the distribution of knowledge and how to properly use the resources and uh you know good agricultural practices and things like that so there are certainly people in the world who think the world is already overpopulated and that may be true to an extent if we're looking at specific geographical areas but uh you know i'm i'm of the school of thought that the world itself uh, we have a lot of space and frankly we're better off having good people who are trying to do good things and so i'm I'm the father who is raising a large family of what I, I hope will be good contributing people of society and so I it's interesting to see other people not not of the same faith as I am just uh, getting their perspective on big families versus uh, those you know countries that aren't even in replacement rates in terms of uh, the children that are being born in their countries so that's my recommendation for the week We'll have the link in the blog copy. Fred, what do you have for us today?
0: My recommendation this week, I actually thought about it and almost brought it up uh d- during the interview because there there was something that Rudolf mentioned about our work and and how it, it, we really spend a lot of time just just in front of computers and typing and in some ways it's there there's Often, not not a very clear connection to the bigger picture of of of, of what what we're trying to to accomplish. And and um, along those lines, I'd like to recommend an article that was published in uh, Notre Dame Magazine. This is the <laughs> the magazine that I get as an alumnus. This is an article called "What Are We Doing?" and it's written by Jonathan Malisek, M A L E. SIC. This is in the latest issue of the of the magazine, which is available online at magazine.nd.edu, and it it, it provides an analysis really of of the, the the changing nature of work and how many workers these days, especially uh, workers in in office settings, are are just really disconnected from from the the results if you will of what they do and then there's a lot of focus on on just how much time we spend typing and and how this has become a, a commonality across across many professions regardless of, of what you are doing and and this really hit home um, one of the these last couple of weeks I've had a couple of uh, medical appointments and it's struck me that uh, the last few times that I've visited a a doctor here in the U.S., there's always been a computer literally behind uh, between me and the practitioner. Um, you know, they bring they they wheel in their their little table with it with the laptop, and you know, sure, there's probably good reasons for that, but uh, but it certainly it certainly struck me as being a very a very true um, a, a very accurate observation, and and for us as as attorneys, right, we do spend so much time uh typing and when people you know as as, as kids, right we, we when we thought of of what lawyers did, we thought of uh, uh, attorneys who, who who would go to court And you know over time we began to to learn that there was there was more to it. Uh, you know not everyone is, is a litigator but but still it, it is interesting to reflect on how um, so much of what we're doing at a at a practical level, um resembles what what people are doing a, a, across the economy and anyway this article looks into looks into that and, and and addresses some of the um associated issues in terms of dissatisfaction on the part of workers who who just don't don't see that that connection uh between their toil and a practical result so again what are we doing um, by Jonathan Malisic in Notre Dame Magazine. And with that, uh, Rodolphe, I'd like to, to thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Many thanks again, Fred and Jonathan. You're welcome in Perth anytime, what, that is whenever uh, we all can return, right? Um, thank you again uh, to you both. And thanks, uh, uh, Harris Bricken, as well, for the invitation. It was uh, very nice to reconnect with the firm after such a long time. So again, uh, thank you, everyone.
1: Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.